Welcome to the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast. I'm Dr. Jay Calvert on tonight by Zoom with my incredible uh, soon-to-be traveling co-host, Dr. Millicent Ravello. How are you doing, Dr. Ravello? I'm doing really, really well. How are you? Good. I'm, uh, I'm trying to get some talks ready. I'm trying to get some operations done. It is a busy week for me. It is. We are off to Paris next week, and there is there's just so much to do before before we leave. It's crazy. But it will get done, you know, because it has to. That's sort of how those things work. There's no yeah. choice. Yeah, I mean, you, you either you either get it done or it doesn't get done, and it'll be there waiting for you when you get back. Yep. But today we are doing our podcast as usual, and we're coming back to talk about a topic that we kind of referenced and touched on a few months ago, and that's body dysmorphic disorder or BDD. And we're circling back to this because we think it's really important that our listeners know more about it and kind of have a fundamental idea about what happens when you have this disease. Yeah. And it's something that I run into a lot in the rhinoplasty world, especially revision rhinoplasty, because somebody with body dysmorphia uh, and specifically body dysmorphic disorder is really one of the places they can focus a lot is the nose. And no matter how much rhinoplasty they have, they wind up not being happy. And it's something I have to pick up on very frequently in my revision cases, especially when somebody right. says, I've had four rhinoplasties, I've had five rhinoplasties. It makes me do a quick pause and say, am I dealing with BDD? And is there a different way that we need to treat this other than more surgery? Right. And just to sort of refresh what the diagnosis is, you know, we all have areas of our body that we don't like or that we would like to improve. And that's fairly normal. But in patients- I have like 12. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. I, Is that normal? Uh, that's like borderline, <laughs> but I, I think you'll be okay. All right, good. But in patients that have BDD, they find, you know, a couple of areas or maybe a lot of areas or one specific area, and they really, really, really focus and hone in on everything that they see wrong with that area or with their body to the degree that the outsider, the bystanders, don't see the deformities that they see, but in their own mind, these are substantial deformities and they really, they really see it. And so it's really, it's really hard. It's hard for them to sort of get past what is or is not actually there. Yeah, it, it's, it's very hard for anybody who doesn't have this type of thinking that they're, it's hard from the get. It's really not, not a, a simple concept. But we see it because we're plastic surgeons and we right, see people they, just they come to us. Yeah. perseverate on things that you can't even believe they think is relevant. Right. And our job is to to guide and to direct and to ask more questions so that they can see and tr hopefully find solutions that don't send them further down a spiral of bad results, unsafe surgical issues. Uh, possible complications that can make the situation worse. So I think the good news is that today we are bringing in an expert, somebody who can really speak about this other than you and I who speak from a very uh, totally clear different kind of yeah, viewpoint. We deal yeah. with it. Like this is yeah. like, it's in our, it's, it's in our everyday lives of our patients and our practices, but we have on with us Robin Stern and she is a licensed therapist. She'll tell us about her credentials a little more specifically, 
uh, who works with patients with body dysmorphic disorder, and she herself has body dysmorphic disorder. And so Robin, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. And I want to just compliment both of you because just so how eloquently you spoke, how you look for patients and ask these questions, that has not been my experience in the field. And I love to hear that both of you as really world-renowned plastic surgeons, you do that. And that seriously means a lot to me and to all the sufferers out there because we're so vulnerable. And to think that you're out there looking for our greater good means so much to me. So I just want to open that up. And I want to thank you again for having me here. But thank you for what you do, because that is essentially, unfortunately, for many people with BDD, you two are the people that they go to, they don't come to me. So (laughs) the fact that you're able to see it, and look at it and not see it from a place of, okay, like this is going to be a great person to get into our office and do multiple procedures is just incredible. And so I'll just tell you a little bit about myself. I'm 42. I live in New York. I lived in LA for about 11 years. I developed body dysmorphic disorder, probably in my late teens. I have personally never gotten any plastic surgery. So I am one of those people that has never gotten work done. My issue was surrounding my skin. And it was to the point where it was so pervasive that I didn't want to leave the house. I really felt that my skin had acne all over. And there was a point where I definitely had skin issues and I had gone on Accutane when I was a freshman in college, but I never saw that it got better. And to the point where you'll see people with body dysmorphic disorder, and these are great questions to ask when they come into your practice is, is it just like, I want to change my nose? Is it just that I want to change my face shape? Or do you think you're going to become a different person? So I'm going to be clear, like for me, when my skin was my identity, the sense of worth and who I was as a human being, and this is what you'll hear across the board for people who want to get something done. So of course you don't, people with BDD, most people can't see it. So they don't seem to understand why you have such distress. And I think that's the number one thing people will say to me, but Robin, like you look so much younger, like I don't get it. And I'm like, you're never going to get it but it took a lot of life from me. And um, it's a very, very serious disorder where 80% of people, trigger warning, have suicidal ideation and one in four attempt. And so we definitely don't want to put them in, yeah, we don't want to put them in situations surgically where they could potentially be in a situation where they could, you know, have issues after. And I think, unfortunately, because it's an appearance concern, Sometimes there's such such poor insight oftentimes with people with body dysmorphic disorder that they don't see it. And I definitely didn't see it as a mental health issue. I literally thought I was ugly, disgusting, and gross. Like you couldn't, you couldn't until I got the diagnosis and I was like, oh my God, this resonates for me. What I'll hear clients say to me is like, when I get a nose job, I'm going to be famous. I'm going to date and my whole life is going to be different. And this is the thing. When we're talking plastic surgery, yes, it's about enhancing your beauty, enhancing what you look like, but it sounds very different. And I'm sure even after we talk today, you're going to hear it differently. When you ask the question, it's going to their life all of a sudden changes to the, whereas people who get plastic surgery, like they, they feel better, but they don't necessarily think their whole life has changed. They're, they're still doing the same things. You'll see oftentimes people like even myself, I'll do things. I'll date. I'll be able to have a job when my skin clears. I'll be able to leave the house. I'll be able to do things when I get a nose job or when I get Botox or filler. And when you hear people say, I'm going to do these things when, that should also kind of tip you off. You might be dealing with a body dysmorphic disorder issue. 
And the most unfortunate thing is that most people are very unhappy with the results. So I am going to say I went to a dermatologist in Los Angeles who said to me, there's no amount of money, Robin, that I will take from you to give you Botox because I don't want to take your phone calls after and deal with you with your body dysmorphic disorder complaining. So he was like very responsible about that. But then on the flip side, I went, the only procedure I ever did was I had like some redness on my chest. So I did a laser and IPL, which is very minimal. And I went into a dermatologist in LA and shared that I had body dysmorphic disorder. And he appeared to tell me from top to bottom what I could get done. (laughs) I got a laser, right? But I only got the laser on the chest. I couldn't handle the redness after that, I guess, comes with the procedure. And I ended up in three weeks of intensive outpatient therapy. A $250 laser cost me $5,000 and two months off of my job. So these these are realities. Um, I never want to say that like plastic surgery isn't the option. And I don't even want to say this, which is new for me, that people with BDD shouldn't be allowed to, to make themselves look better either. I'm 42. And so why should I not be able to partake in things just because I have BDD, but it's about knowing what I'm doing. It's about checking where I'm at within myself. And I always say to my clients, can you handle all three? Can you handle if you look the same? if you look better, or if you perceive yourself to look worse. And if you can handle all three of them, then you can handle to go into whatever you're dealing with. But I do think it's helpful for plastic surgeons to be able to see this, to know, and this is the first time that I'm hearing that that it's even looked at, because I just thought it was kind of like we turn away towards it. We don't look at it. No, I mean, we definitely... Learn about it. We're dialed in. Yeah. We are, you know, as, as plastic surgeons, we are looking for it because you're going to have disappointed patients. And if you're going to have disappointed patients, that's not good for your patient. It's not good for your practice. It's not good for the time you need to spend on it. So we are, uh, we're dialed in and BDD is a, is a topic that comes up in our meetings. It's in our journals and it's something that we deal with. It doesn't mean though, and Dr. Vell can probably speak a little bit about this too, just because somebody has BDD doesn't mean they can't have plastic surgery. I mean, don't you think so, Dr. Ravello? You just have to be very clear. Like if you know or you highly suspect that a patient has BDD, you have to be very, very clear with them about their expectations and make sure that they understand and can verbalize back to you what the reasonable expectations and outcomes are and document that in the medical record. Because then if they come back and they say, well, I thought it was going to be this and this and this, we can say, member, let's go back. We talked about what you can and can't expect. So I think it's about not that they can't have plastic surgery, but that you have to really be you know, realistic with them about what is and what is not possible. Um, but going back, Robin, to kind of the story, you know, your own personal story, at what point did you realize or how did you realize? Did someone tell you that you had this? Did you come across it on your own? Like what made you realize that this was actually more a, a problem, you know, internally than externally? So I actually was housebound right before 9-11. I'm, you know, living in New York and I couldn't go back to college. And it was because I couldn't handle how my skin looked and how I couldn't handle looking in the mirror. And at that point, I wasn't given the diagnosis, but I found the book that's called The Broken Mirror by Dr. Catherine Phillips. And I was like, this is me. And then my mom's therapist actually told me to go to the Biobehavioral Institute. 
And when I was 22, I was diagnosed. And, and so I think it was, I think I always had like, sort of like this awareness, like, but there was this like internal dialogue, like, no, you're ugly, you're disgusting, you're gross. But I honestly didn't think other people felt this way. Like, I didn't think it was a mental health issue. And I think, and that's what I want to say to people. I don't know if people think when they think of their appearance, I don't know if they ever, it doesn't like, like, shoot off of you. Like, this is a mental health issue. Like for me, I felt like this was a vanity. This was something about my appearance. I felt like this needed to change. The more I started to understand the disorder and especially my thought process around it, the more I realized that it was distorted. The more my life... So again, the more I started to retreat from my life and the more my life got affected was the more of the realization like this is much more than just like wanting clear skin. This is like a disorder that's really taking my life from me and taking things that matter the most from me away from me. Right. And so would you, and I guess you could speak to this um, maybe through other patients you've helped as well. Do patients with BDD, if they don't know that they have it, are they going to be offended if a doctor or someone suggests that they have it or suggests that they see a therapist? Because that's always the fine line that we as practitioners walk. We don't want to offend someone or hurt their feelings by saying, hey, maybe you should see a therapist. Maybe you should have this assessed. So maybe you could tell us you know, how best to approach that situation if we suspect that we have a patient that has this. I actually think that's very ethical to do that. Um, and I think of myself and I probably wish I would have had somebody say that to me versus somebody maybe giving me more creams for my face or giving me more medication if they would have even thought that there was a psychological component to it. I think I probably could have benefited of even getting the diagnosis early. I think it's a way of approaching it. you know. And again, I think for all parties involved, including you and the patient, it's like just ensuring like the best thing. Have you ever thought that maybe this is more than just wanting to change your nose shape or get an augmentation or whatever it is? And I do think it's just having an open conversation and and talking about your emotional state of mind. And I always think it's about talking about like what your goals are, but like you said, like having that realistic conversation with them. And, you know, the, the hardest part with BDD is the distortion we see. So um, this is a very true reality of me to this day. I don't know what I is that I truly look like. And in order to live a life that's fulfilling and meaningful, I have to give up the part of me that most people get the opportunity to have. So I can't really answer, like, would somebody be satisfied with getting the procedure? I think the most important thing is we want the person not to be destroyed by it. I don't know if they're going to be your patient that's going to be sitting there putting on Instagram their result. I would just be grateful if they're okay. And like I said, why I want to be clear. I think as I've gotten older, especially, I feel like why I shouldn't not get certain things done. Would I ever get a laser again? No, because I had a bad experience. But should I get Botox or not? Why should I but I have to know what it is I'm getting into? I have to be willing to accept that I may not like what it is that I see. And I don't think people with BDD should be shunned from plastic surgeon surgeons, but I think it's about having a conversation. And from my experience, that's why this has been so inviting is that I've had the opposite experience where people have like closed their eyes to what it is that I say. And that actually scares me more with clients because I've, you know, I've had clients where doctors have refused to perform rhinoplasty, but they'll find the doctor that will. And then guess what? The client feels 
botched after and then wants to go for a revision and then comes into my office and is devastated. Yeah. And to the point where multiple doctors, maybe they even went to you, said no. And then they found a doctor in LA that was willing to do it. And then the doctor like really regretted it after when he realized oh, yeah. he performed it on someone with body dysmorphic disorder. Yeah. Well, not every not every surgeon is as astute uh, in dealing with it. And, you know, I I have like a almost like a protocol when I think it's BDD. I mean, I always have somebody in the room with me uh, who's there. I either have my scribe or a nurse or a PA or some assistant who's there. And if if I'm standing there like I recently was with a patient who's standing in front of me with spectacular results, who looks amazing and they're going like i don't know what you did this looks terrible it's absolute i what why would you do it this way this like and we're sitting there looking at somebody who looks like you know throw on a bikini and go to the beach already what are you waiting for uh we we just sit there and say you know we see that you see things that way but your results are really very excellent and standard for what these operations can do. And it's what we discussed before surgery. We don't know why you're seeing this, but maybe we have to have more further discussion about it. And ultimately get to, could you potentially talk to your psychologist, your psychiatrist? Is your primary care doctor able to talk to you? Because these results, let me send you to another plastic surgeon who we trust to give you another opinion. Those things are really important because you have to talk them off the ledge. Otherwise, it does spiral and you yeah. wind up with somebody who's got, as you said, like not just are they're upset with the results, but they become they can have suicidal ideation. They yeah. can become depressed. They can, you know, become totally obsessive and unable to, you know, get out of the house. All the things that you can see in a spiral of that ob obsessive compulsive type of problem. And it's debilitating. It, and, and this is very hard for somebody who doesn't have this disorder deals with this right. disorder to understand. Right. right. And I, and again, I think there are a lot of people that go for plastic surgery that don't have it. And I think that that's very fair. And, and I think, you know, people for, with BDD, they just need to know, like, your view is always going to be distorted. Like I'm never, no matter how much, how much recovery I have and where I'm at in my life right now. And I feel so blessed. Like I said, I don't really know what I see. And that's actually based out of a research study out of actually uh, UCLA. Functional MRI studies show people's brains light up differently for people with BDD and eating disorders versus people who don't have them. Their mm -hmm. spatial processing is different. So it's actually a neurological issue. So yeah. it's very hard. It's like it's hard for someone with BDD to ever see a change and to ever feel that it's acceptable. So sometimes it's like, you know, making this decision to get a procedure, I always say less is more, um, you know, and, and to really, again, ask yourself those three questions. If you're okay, that you can handle like a blip or something then, and you have to, I always, especially someone with BDD, they should be in a good place within their recovery. But I don't think that there's, I don't think it's fair as somebody who is an expert in the field and has it. I don't think it's fair if I get like a red X against my name because I have this disorder that I can't ever get any work done. I just... But I know myself, right? I know what I can and can't handle. I know what I'm probably willing to do and won't willing to do. And that comes along with years of lived experience within myself and realize, you know, um, what the reality is and that knowing that no procedure should give me a quality of life or give me 
a life. Like if I'm looking for life, the answer is not in a procedure. The answer is in a lot more deeper work. And I think that's a major question to ask. I'm sure you see a lot of people that want to just look better, but they're not sitting there being like, I'm going to start living my life when I get this procedure. They're already living. Yeah. No, that's a a really valid, valid point. Because we do, we definitely see those patients that they, their whole existence depends on getting that next plastic surgery. So once a patient's been diagnosed or suspects that they have BDD and they come to you, what's the next step for them? What are the treatment options here? So right now it's very similar to the OCD model of cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure response prevention. It's effective. And I would say about 50 to 60%. My colleagues would really probably be hard on me that I'm giving a very low percentage, but I- Robin, Robin, those were some big words you said. You're going to have to break those down. (laughs) So, okay. So cognitive behavioral (laughs) therapy, which is challenging your faulty core beliefs about your your appearance, and then exposure response prevention. So for instance, for me, I'll use me as an example. I didn't want to leave my house or I would only go out during the evening hours because I didn't want people to see my skin. So for me, the exposure would be to go out in bright lights, would go out in public um, and be around people, talk to people, would even be accentuating bad skin. So putting like redness on my face. So doing exposures like that, and we would do like a graduated like list of exposures. And then also it's usually warranted for medication and similar to OCD, it would be like working with a psychiatrist and being on a high dose SSRI. So like, like Prozac, um, you know, and, and that's, yeah, an antidepressant. So that seems to work well together. Um, but what we recently realized is that 80% of people, including myself, um, actually different than OCD have experienced some type of trauma in their life. And that usually is also co-occurring with the body dysmorphic disorder. So that tends to need to be treated mm-hmm. like simultaneously within just the behavioral based therapy. Got it. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point though, about the medications, because one thing you said before is that no matter, you know, how you're, you know, I'm paraphrasing you like, but no matter how you, you look at it and try to see these differences, you're never going to see it the way that it actually is. And that to me speaks of an organic brain chemistry malfunction, whether it's too much of something, too little of something, some pathway isn't right. There is, there is some actual organic problem that is going to either be treated with medication, with some type of, who knows, you know, maybe there'll be some sort of, you know, brain ablation in the future who knows what it is i hope so because i would love to know what it is that i look like i think that's called a lobotomy (laughs) (laughs) that's 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 what you always say i need but the uh but that's the thing is that you really have to understand that this is a this is like a real functional problem in the way the brain works and it's not you can't just tell somebody no, it's not that yeah. way. Get over it. Yeah. Yeah. Get over it. It's like telling somebody, oh, that's the worst thing up. for it. Reassurance yeah. is the worst thing for it. It does right. nothing. Nothing. Yeah. You, you I mean, like can't you tell said, somebody in depression those... to just cheer up. Like that yeah. doesn't happen. Right. Like the, I mean, you said it yourself. Those MRIs, right. different parts of the brain light up. So these patients, their brains are actually showing them something different than right. the rest of us are seeing. It's They're not making it up actually their brains are literally telling them that's what's right. there and unfortunately with the meds right now it's not correcting that what it tends to correct is the intrusive thoughts and the obsessions that come mm. along with like thinking i'm disgusting i'm ugly like i need to change this and i need to change this so i can live a better life unfortunately there is no med right now that kind of can recreate like 
to correct the fact that the spatial processing is different than, let's say, mine and yours. They can't do that yet. Hopefully, at some point, that's true recovery, right? That's true curing what this is. We haven't. So the meds seem to help with the intrusive thoughts. And then it allows you to live a little bit more. And as you begin to live more, you start to put value on other things. So the value, look, I'm not going to say that you should, your value shouldn't be your appearance. On some level, it's there. For mine, my value was over 90%. I didn't, didn't matter that I was smart. It didn't matter I had two master's degrees. Like nothing mattered. I just wanted clear skin. That's all that mattered. And, it did, yeah. and that's literally all that mattered. Like I did exercises with doctors and I was like, all I want for the rest of my life is clear skin. I don't care about anything else. And wow. to the point where when you get into recovery, it's like, okay, your appearance is a part of you, but there's many other things and many other facets. And I'm sure that's how most people live. Their appearance is a part of them. It's not dictating who they are and it's not their like core part of their identity. And so if you don't mind me asking a sort of personal question, sure. um, when your skin did get better, because skin does get better over, over time, and as we get older, we grow out of our hormones. Did you feel better? I never knew it. And I actually had this conversation with a college friend because all of this kind of transpired when I was in college. Um, and I went away to school and I asked her what her opinion was because I left a semester and she goes, well, I remember you had acne like in, in freshman year, but like you went on Accutane and then your like your skin was perfect and then you were gorgeous. And I'm like, interesting because I never thought my skin got better oh that's really so I never saw it that's the point I never un so I want to be clear like this isn't a vanity thing it was I felt effective but one pimple was one too many one pimple was when was the next breakout going to happen and I couldn't handle it so honestly I never I just never knew when my, I never got to the place, like when my skin cleared, where I was able to even acknowledge that. And I think that's possibly why, like, even when you see people come in and say like, I can't see what you did to me, or I feel like it looks worse. Cause they just, there's never that point where they have this understanding. They just can't see it. And I couldn't. Robin, did you ever deal with what the trauma was that triggered this in you? Does that, was that, fun? we don't have to get into it, but was yeah, that part I mean, of your, real, your yeah, really recovery? Quickly, yeah, really quickly. More recently, I realized um, I was bullied for my appearance when I was a kid. Um, and so I think that's where I kind of interpreted like about appearance. And I also grew up in a Jewish household where like appearance is life. So like, it's like, you're beautiful. Like my grandfather, may you rest in peace. You get more beautiful every time you see you, but I would love you if you were ugly. And I was like, thanks, grandpa. Like, <laughs> so I think this like combination of like appearances, like valued, right? Growing up in that environment, literally. And then being told at a young age, because I had curly hair, that I was different and sort of like, I interpret all of that. And I think the predisposition, it, it's exact, it, exactly what I felt. So a lot of people, it could be a bullying experience. It could be a predisposition because there's a lot of focus, which is going to be interesting in 15 to 20 years to see how social media impacts this diagnosis. Huge. We don't know. I mean, I We're gonna, gonna our numbers are going to skyrocket. Yeah. yeah, it's going to be next level because I didn't have that. Right. I didn't, what, what did I have? I mean, I'm like, what did I have? So, but yeah, so that was definitely a big piece of understanding and understanding why I held on to the belief so much, because essentially I was made to feel different because of how I looked. It just was something that I should have been able to process through that. Maybe I wouldn't have developed the disorder or as significant as I did, but most people have 
which is a little different from the OCD because it's it's very similar in the intrusive thoughts, compulsive behaviors like mirror checking and all these things and reassurance seeking and Googling. But people with body dysmorphic disorder tend to have had a traumatic childhood, whereas people with OCD, not necessarily. So there's like a very big difference there. And we realize that needs to be touched upon. Got it. Well, a lot of my revision rhinoplasty patients uh, are uh, sort of PTSD patients, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, because they went in for a rhinoplasty to look better. And for whatever reason, it didn't turn out. And a lot of them have good reason to be sort of shocked at what's turned to what's mm-hmm. happened. I mean, I can show you things that just make you, your head spin. Um, and that's not the norm. Obviously, most people get rhinoplasty, love it. That's why there are so many that happen in this country, 200,000 a year. Wow. I, do, I do like 200 a year myself. So if somebody's doing the other the other 199,800 of them. But the, uh, the reality is, is that when they see their face not being right, that's the traumatic event. Right. And it becomes... A trigger and i and i tell them and if you listen to our revision rhinoplasty podcast i say a lot of times when you have this done you're going to relive the the trauma of seeing your nose being wrong because your nose is going to be wrong when i take the splint off it's going to be swollen way more than your than your previous rhinoplasty which was a primary it never had surgery now the scar tissue makes it a in, in completely different operation it's reconstructive in nature get ready because this is a, a process you're going to have to go through and i prepare them and in fact, I have them mostly listen to that revision rhinoplasty podcast and I speak to them about it, but it is a real PTSD event. It's a trigger event to, to have a bad nose job. Now, if you have BDD on top of it, or maybe <sighs> that can become the trigger for BDD where it's never going to be right, which I've also seen. Okay. So this is the, the concept of trauma being part of this population yeah. is really important to get. Because if you're going to try to help people, walking them back to, to to whatever it is that brought them there is kind of where recovery begins. And if you don't if you don't address that, if you don't kind of take them down, you know, like take the house back to the studs before you build a new one, you know, it's it's really you're you're going to be very ineffective in taking care of these folks. And those are the people that I don't think can have plastic surgery because it's going to be a fail every single time. And it's not it could be a worse fail and it could be more traumatic and spiral the diagnosis deeper. And the, the reason I'm bringing this up is because a lot of plastic surgeons listen to this podcast and I've had a lot of experience walking through this, this pathway for patients with BDD and, and it is not simple. It is not an easy way to go. And if you miss it, you got an unhappy patient who's worse off for what you've done and it, and it doesn't make a good situation for anyone. No. And I think it's, I think it's amazing. I mean, I think us as like me and like my colleagues and I happen to have two colleagues who have BDD, like, I think they're going to be like amazed because we don't think that this exists. We don't think that there are plastic surgeons that think about this. And like I said, it's, it's, it means so much that you're, that you do this day in and day out. And you're looking for that because in our minds, because we're like in a separate entity of like therapists and, and psychiatrists and researchers, we still think that that hasn't transferred over yet and that people are still. And so it means the world to me to hear that, like you're speaking on this and that people, you know, are looking to you to hear that because I think that's important. And I think that, you know, and like I said, I think there is recovery in BDD. And that means when you get to a place where you're okay, like 
you shouldn't be turned away from something. And just because like now that I'm, I mean, especially now that my face is all over the place talking about this, I should never be turned away just because I have a disorder. But I think that if I ever wanted something done, I should go to a doctor that's willing to have a conversation with me and that's willing to be honest with me and willing to say, okay, these are the risks. And I think sometimes I know for me, when I went to even just the laser, there was no conversation. There was no sense of understanding what I was doing. And I know it's so minimal. And I've had clients say to me, Robin, that's a small risk, like what you did. And I was like, you don't know what that did to me. I was ready to be hospitalized. I left my job. Like I couldn't, I left my relationship. Like I, like my whole life was over. I probably just needed a doctor to be like, let just let you know, you're going to be pink a little after. And it's probably going to take some time. Instead, it looked worse than when I came in and my whole brain just like flipped out and I could not stop. It was just, it it was awful. And I totally get that because for me, and I think this is something that others may relate to, I have a a bad shoulder from playing rugby and I need to get a shoulder MRI. I've needed that shoulder MRI for the last 15 years. And you know why I can't have that shoulder MRI? Because every time they start to roll me into the MRI machine, I'm triggered and I, I am claustrophobic beyond words. And the reason I'm claustrophobic is because I had an MRI when I was having a massive migraine when I was a resident. Why I was having a migraine? Because we didn't have rules against being awake for six weeks at a time. And I wound up with a migraine headache that was so bad, they thought I probably had a brain tumor. So they put me in the MRI, MRI machine, no brain tumor. But the trauma of having that MRI wow. and being in the, in the, you know, of having that MRI machine around me with that massive headache, every time I start to roll towards that MRI machine, I say, nope, not happening today. And I get up and I leave. So it's just, I get it. It's like, and that people can get because like, who can't roll into an MRI machine and get a shoulder MRI? I mean, Dr. Rodello's done that. She's like, what are you talking about? You can get an MRI. You know, she's got, you know, I I feel relaxed. (laughs) I have, I have a three-year-old. I literally get, I'm relaxed when I go into an MRI. I'm like, you can keep me in there another 30 minutes. Play some music. Let me sleep. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, I'm good. Right. But for me, it's like, uh, to me, I just, I, as I approach the machine, because I always try, I'm like, let's try this year. And about every two or three years I try it, I'm just like, I can't do it. I can't even do the open MRI which is still very tight because for me, the trauma of that migraine headache and being in the MRI machine adds up to like, I don't want to be there again. And, you know, could I probably take some Valium and get in there? I'm sure. I was I thinking that. I did. You course. said it though. You're yeah, the doctor. But, <laughs> yeah, I got, but I got too much time. Then I have to take the day off and I don't have to, I, you know, I don't have time for that. So, but the reality is, but the reason I bring that story up is so that people can relate to it because that laser that you had is an event <laughs> That you just, you can't handle that. Like, I can't handle this being read. And, and it's sad to me oh. because I want, I mean, this is just, I mean, I'm, I'm being real here. I would love to be able to handle it. I mean, I have a little melasma under my eye from pregnancy. Like, I would love to be able to handle it. For some people, it's a, va- like, I have clients with BDD who are like, that's nothing. Like, I got a rhinoplasty. I'm boshed. I want a revision. Like, what you're asking for is, like, easy. And I'm like, I think it's just different. I think it's, it's just, a, you know, across the board, different of, like, each and every person would think something is more a risk or not, you know? And obviously for me, because my skin was everything, like I probably could handle more of a surgery than I could handle like anything with my skin. So I think it depends on what is triggering, you know? You know, Robin, you've touched on so many things that I think are really going to be helpful to our patients. Um, But also, as Dr. Calvert said, we do have a lot of plastic surgeons listening. And we also have a lot of young uh, plastic surgeons in training that are listening as well. 
And so I think, you know, to sort of summarize and, and wrap it up, what would be your advice to a plastic surgeon that has a patient that either they suspect or the patient has disclosed that they have BDD, but they want to proceed forward with the procedure? How can the plastic surgeon, the patient do that in a healthy way? Should they just automatically make sure that they're seeing a therapist? Like what should, what are the steps that the patient and the plastic surgeon can do to get through this process safely? So I think one is expectation, right? So talking about what, what you're expecting from the results Two, I do think it's a conversation of, have you ever, you know, if you, if they're disclosing they're diagnosed because today people just diagnose themselves, have you ever had treatment before? Um, you know, what is your support going to be like before? So like they may be in recovery and they may not have it. So maybe setting up kind of treatment for them after. Um, so they have therapy and support after. But I would say like the biggest thing is like, even regardless of recovery or not, is really asking the question of like, is, is what you're going to get done going to, what's, what's your hope for this procedure? And if they start to say, my hope is like, I just want to look refreshed and youthful and just a little like nipped and tucked and just, you know, I've had a very, you know, like I have a better version of me. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I am going to, if if somebody says to you, my whole life is going to be different, I'm going to be able to live and, and my whole, and you start to hear someone's emotion and because BDD affects your level of functioning. So if you start to hear like those trigger words, then you have to really step back. And then at that point, I think as plastic surgeons, and I think if somebody ever said to me, like, I will never touch you and don't ever come, I think it would have horrified me. I don't know where I would have yeah. turned to. And so see, since you guys are very known and, and highly regarded, I would, I would find a way to maybe like refer them to someone so that they could, because the last thing you want these people to do is to go to a plastic surgeon that doesn't do a good job and that's going to take them anyway. And then, and then they're in a worse position, right? So that doesn't help them. Um, I think it's, it's just going to be depending upon where they're at in their diagnosis and where they're at in recovery would be determined like what type of support they would need. But I think across the board, probably just to have something set up just in case is always like best practice. Got it. A safety net that they can fall back on afterwards. That's great. Well, well, Robin, this has been awesome. We really appreciate you, you coming on. Um, where can our listeners find uh, your writings, your information, Absolutely. blog, Instagram? What's where, where do they learn more about what you do? So I am on Instagram at the BDD OCD therapist. And you can also find me on my website at rlsterntherapy.com. I have a Linktree account all connected. You can see all of my podcasts, my articles, very involved with the BDD Foundation of the UK and the International OCD Foundation. So, and I am in the process of writing my book. So hopefully that will be done this year and it'll be a memoir slash um, therapy kind of clinician approach to treating BDD. So all good things coming out, hopefully. So see, a, a, a hard thing can always turn into a good thing. And that's, you know, I think in general, that's, right? We have to look at it that way. Absolutely. Well, great. Well, we really appreciate you coming Thank on. Thank you so much. Again, our guest is Robin Stern, and this is the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast coming to you from the 90210. If you like what you heard on the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast and want to get in touch with either Dr. Ravello or myself, 
This is how to do it. You can reach me at the website, ravelloplasticsurgery.com. You can reach out to the office directly through the website with any questions or consult requests, or you can call the office directly at 310-954-1355. And you can reach me on Instagram at ravelloplasticsurgery. And to reach me, the phone number is 310-777-8800. My website is drcalvert.com, drcalvert.com. Instagram, Dr. J. Calvert. And of course, you may want to check out our YouTube channel for the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast, which is simply that, Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery Podcast. Hope to see you all in the office very soon. Uh